Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. We just sang, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, as a reminder of the weakness of Christ. We hear about the power of Christ, and He is powerful. He's omnipotent. But He became weak enough to suffer in our place. And so we see with the apostles in our text this morning. The apostles had tremendous power. They work and they act in such a way as to make a mark on the entire city of Jerusalem within just a few weeks. And of course, that mark that they made on the world continues today as we gather here. And hundreds of millions of other Christians gather in places all over the world. But that power should never be thought to exclude weakness. Just listen, Acts 4, starting at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignations and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison publicly. And then skipping down to verse 40, they agreed with them when they had called for the apostles and beaten them. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We'll stop there. Let's pray. 
Father, we love power. But help us to see the weakness of the apostles. And to see in that their master, who was weak enough to be crucified, and to see in the weakness of Christ and the apostles our own weakness. Father, don't let us lie about that weakness, try to hide it, pretend that the Christian life is one long story of power going on to greater power. Lord, we thank you for the power that's present here, the very strong emphasis on power. We ask that you would help us not to miss the weakness either. Give me the grace to speak powerfully. Father, give us too the power to listen, to take heed, to meet with you in your word. Pray these things in the name of your risen Son, our powerful Savior. Amen. So I mentioned that Cheon book, Modern Day Apostles, and the chapter title probably that set me off the most was Apostles Have Money or Access to Wealth, followed immediately by Apostles Have Positions of Influence. Now I already knew that I was preaching this Sunday on not just the power of the apostles, but also the weakness of the apostles. Of course, Mr. On doesn't have any chapters at all on the weakness of the apostles. Apostles are beaten. Apostles are mistreated. Apostles are hated. Apostles are weak. And yet, of course, Luke says it here and so throughout Acts. The apostles are imprisoned and beaten and even martyred. Uh, on well different apostles are martyred at various junctures throughout the book and we know that the rest of them were probably martyred shortly after the conclusion of the book the bible's emphasis yes certainly talks about the power of the apostles but the portrait is not one-sided or monochromatic in any sense Apostles are powerful in five major areas of church life, just in the text that we read. But we too, like the apostles, should be full of spiritual power and weak enough to suffer for our Savior. Full of spiritual power, weak enough to suffer for Christ. That is a better description of an apostle, of the Son of God, or of any private Christian. Well, let's start in verse 43, or verse 33 of chapter 4, rather. The power that's first mentioned, with great power, the apostles testified to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the foundational power. This is where the other powers mentioned in this text come from. They come from this power to testify that Jesus is alive. What is testimony? We've talked about this. Testimony is the act of a witness, somebody who has first-hand knowledge, sharing or repeating, proclaiming, describing that knowledge. 
A witness, you're not a witness if you heard about it from somebody else, if you read about it in a book, if you have a general idea of it that you picked up from just being around things for a while. No, a witness is somebody who knows firsthand. I have experienced the reality of this for myself. I am a witness. And then the action of a witness is to speak and to say, here's my first-hand knowledge. Here's what I know. Now, in this world, we're so used to depending on second-hand information that we sometimes lose the distinction between first-hand and second-hand knowledge. Right? You probably, at least some of the time, some of you, okay, some of you are under the delusion that you know how your iPhone works. Others of you, of course, are, are not. You don't have first-hand knowledge of how to make a cell phone. You have, at best, second-hand knowledge of that. But as a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, you have first-hand knowledge that Jesus is alive. You testify to the resurrection. You can testify to that, not because you read about it in a book. You did. Not because somebody else told you about it. I have. But that's not the point. That's not testimony to say, The book says Jesus is alive. It's not testimony to say, my preacher told me that Jesus is alive. That's not evidence, that's hearsay. Who cares what somebody else says? Even if it's the word of God in one sense, the mission of the Christian in testifying is to say, here's what I know for myself. I've met Jesus. He's forgiven my sins. He's changed my heart. He's changed my life. I know firsthand that Jesus is alive. The apostles knew that. They saw him walking among them, healing, testifying, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Luke has described all of that back in chapter 1. The apostles then testified of their firsthand knowledge of Christ powerfully. People who heard their witness said, in many cases, yes, I believe this. Jesus is alive. Peter and John have convinced me by the depth, the sincerity of their testimony. So that's the power that the apostles had. And it's a power that you and I share to testify to the resurrection of the Son of God. We're not saying that we know somebody who died 2,000 years ago. We're saying we know somebody who lives today. Now, it's important to recognize that power to testify to the resurrection is not the power to use big words. Especially in our branch of Christianity, we tend to think that the power to testify actually is reducible to the power, like a philosopher, to learn the terminological tools and then do some logic chopping. That's not what the power to testify means. You don't have to know words like parousia and uh, paraclesis and all these other Greek words that you might hear from time to time around the church. That's not what the apostles were doing. With great power, the apostles were writing philosophy textbooks. No, they were 
testifying. Nor is power to testify the power to impress people with your smarts. Oh, if I talk about what I know about Jesus, they're all going to say, wow, that one must know something. No, power to testify to the resurrection is not power to be a philosopher. It's not power to look smart. It's simply the stubbornness to say, no, I really know this. I'm sorry, you can't talk me out of it. I will not be persuaded that Jesus is still dead. I know too much to fall for that. I'm sorry. That's what the apostles were doing. Stubbornly insisting that Jesus is alive. And based on that power then, immediately Luke segues into this power to distribute money. As everyone sells their property, lays it at the apostles' feet. We've talked about that. How this comes up over and over at the scene between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Laid it at the apostles' feet. And then Ananias falls dead at the apostles' feet. Sapphira falls dead at the apostles' feet. Something's at your feet. The world is at his feet, right? You are in charge of it. You have power over it. The apostles have power over money. Right? Mr. Ron is like that. Apostles have money or access to wealth. But the point is not that the apostles had money. What did Peter and John say in chapter 3? Silver and gold have I none. The point is not that you have money. The point is that you have power over money such that money does not have power over you. Now, money can rule you whether you have a lot of money, a little money, or no money. In fact, of course, sometimes money is more powerful in the life of a poor person than in the life of a rich person. Not always. The apostles had the power to distribute money. Because since Jesus is alive, money is no longer our boss. We don't bow before the almighty dollar. We don't live, eat, breathe, sleep. Money. We don't live for mammon. Why not? Because mammon can supply the things of this world, but because Jesus is alive, we understand that even if we starve to death and die, even if we lose everything money can buy, we will rise again. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Martin Luther actually meant that when he said it, because he had power over money just like the apostles did. When Christ went around calling the disciples to name them apostles, he did not uh, ask to see their last five years of tax returns or a statement from their banker regarding their net worth. Right? How much money you have has nothing to do with this. Whether you have the power to tell money whose boss has everything to do with this. Money ruled Ananias and Sapphira, and that's why they died. The apostles ruled money, and that's why they had the power to build the church by using the money for charitable purposes. We can calmly let goods and kindred go, empty bank accounts, liquidate real estate, 
donate to the poor, exercise hospitality, feed people, clothe people, give away a car, because we don't live for money. The apostles showed us the way. Jesus, before that, showed them the way. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was not an owner of real estate. He was not a rich man. Money did not rule him. When he needed to pay his taxes, right? he called for the fish. Peter caught the fish, got the coin, paid the tax. If you firsthand know that Jesus is alive, then you know that money is not ultimate. The apostles also had power to expose liars. And here's shown us, of course, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira lying about how much they gave. Now, to be a Christian does not mean that you will have the power to always tell when somebody's lying to you. But it does mean that you will often have that power, particularly when it comes to false doctrine. If you're a Christian, if you know firsthand that Jesus is alive, and you happen to get a book in the mail from Princeton University Press, and this book, after a couple of pages, you can tell the author is leading up to say that Jesus is really not alive. Right? You have the power to expose lies. You have the ability to say, I don't care what letters this fellow has after his name. He's lying. He's saying Jesus is not alive, and I know that Jesus is alive. If false teaching sounds exactly like true teaching to you, you need to check into whether you know Christ. But if you have the ability to listen to teaching, evaluate it and say, that's not true. That's not what's in the book. That's not what I know firsthand about who Jesus is. Then you have the power that the apostles had to expose Liars. Another part that we have not looked at yet, starting in verse 12, the apostles' miracles, doing signs and wonders, people getting healed right and left, so many people coming in to be healed that Peter can't possibly give personal attention to them all, and they're laying them out on the street so that his shadow might fall on some of them. Right. Oh, I'm the lucky one. I got the side of the street where the morning sun will put his shadow on. The rest of you have to wait till he comes home tonight to get the evening shadow. That's how jammed the streets of Jerusalem are with people dying to be healed. Now, what do we make of this? Well, unfortunately, our charismatic brothers and sisters have taken this and said, see, the church ought to offer physical healing. That's not actually part of our job description. What is the church's job description? What kind of healing do we offer here? We've already talked about this with Acts. We offer spiritual, moral healing. The church ought to be full of people who can say, I used to be addicted to opioids. Jesus found me and healed me and freed me through his church. I used to be addicted to pornography, but Jesus found me, healed me through his church. I'm free. Fill in that blank with whatever you want. 
food, money, pleasure, power, lying, stealing, self-harm, harming others. I used to be in bondage to this. I used to be morally sick. And Jesus found me, and I'm healed. That's the kind of healing the church offers. We don't do knee replacements here. We can't offer you a new lung or new ears. What do we offer? We offer a new heart. So in other words, what kind of health do we do? We do mental, behavioral, moral, spiritual health. That's the kind of healing we're on the line for. And if the church was actually healing people like that, we would see the same kind of crowding in that the apostles saw. Believers were increasingly added to the church, both multitude, multitudes of both men and women. The church is surging past the benchmarks established by the Pentecost sermon and by Peter's sermon in chapter 3. And even more people are joining because the church offers something that nothing else offers. That moral, spiritual healing. I showed some of you in Sunday school a couple of years ago a little film that the Wall Street Journal put together featuring Angus Deaton, who happens to be a Princeton professor. And he describes... Oh, what is the title of his book? Deaths of Despair. Why life expectancy in America is falling, essentially. And they ask him in this film about the causes of that and whether it's just that people are poor and he says, oh, I'm sure people would be better off financially if they had more money. But then he goes on to say, this is not an economic problem. It's a failure of spiritual and social life. That's why Americans are overdosing. That's why life expectancy is falling. Now, being an economist, he goes on to talk about economic solutions, even though he said at the beginning of the video that there aren't economic solutions. The church offers genuine spiritual and social life. That's the healing that we have here. How do we get there? Well, by being a real community who's honest with each other, open with each other, spending time with each other. That's how Christ heals us through his church. When you have the whole body backing you up, sin is much easier to deal with than when you're hiding and on your own. If God lets loose His power, then even being around the church will make moral cripples walk, leap, and praise God. So when the church can't do this, I would argue, when we've stopped offering spiritual healing, that's when groups of Christians arise saying, we got to get back to physical healing. 
We need to help people who have thrown out their back. We need to help people who broke their foot. There's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, Peter was doing that. But our main mission is not that. We're not a hospital or an outpatient surgery center. We are a church. That means we live together as a body, applying the power of Christ to one another for moral and spiritual healing. So the church grew more than ever. Multitudes were increasingly added. That was, again, the power of the apostles as they unleashed the power of Christ. So five kinds of power. Power to testify to the resurrection. Power over money. Power to expose liars. Power to heal sickness. Power to grow the church. But Luke does not leave it there because he's far too honest about what being an apostle means. He got to travel with Paul. He got to see Paul in jail. He got to see Paul shipwrecked. We have 66 books in the Bible and not one of them is titled The Victorious Christian Life. Including this one. So, the apostles are powerful. And the apostles are weak. They go to prison. Peter and John have been arrested overnight already by this point. Then all the apostles go to prison in chapter 5, verse 18, laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison publicly. Right There were their names right there in the police blotter section of the Jerusalem Post. Simon Peter, Andrew, and all the rest of them lined up Maybe even publish their mug shots. Here are some disturbers of the peace. They're going to jail. Right? It wasn't done in a hidden fashion. It was done publicly. And then, yeah, they get out of jail the next day. And they end up getting released. But first they get roughed up a bit in verse 40. They called for the apostles. Bring in the apostles and then they just turn the thugs loose on them. Beat them up. And then say, okay, now you can go. Don't mess with us again. The lives of the apostles demonstrated spiritual power right and left. And they also demonstrated lack of political power. Political weakness. They weren't morally weak. Right? That's not the point of this sermon. It's easy to take that away in this day and age. Oh, the Christian is powerful, but he's also weak. And when temptation comes, the Christian just falls. No, that's not the point. Not that the apostles were morally weak. They're politically weak. They don't have the power to protect themselves from being beat up by the cops. They don't have the power to protect themselves from the temple establishment from the Roman Empire. What is Luke telling us? That it's okay to be politically weak. If the cause of Antichrist is advancing on a dozen fronts, 
in the guise of abortion rights or sexual revolution craziness or anything else. Don't despair. This is normal. This is where the church started. And Paul is on the record in 2 Corinthians. We read it. I'm glad when I'm weak. Triumphalist books that only talk about the power of the apostles and the power of the Christian life and the victories that we can expect to see and leave out, oh yeah, you can expect to get beaten. Or you can expect to lose tax privileges. Or you can expect to get fired. That's more honest, and that's, of course, what Acts tells us. Spiritual power walks hand in hand with political weakness throughout the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. God is in charge today just as much as he was on Good Friday, just as much as he was on the day that the apostles went to jail and the next day when they got beaten with rods. And they didn't say, oh, this weakness is a liability. Isn't there any way to get one of our own in charge of the temple? No, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. The apostles didn't go nuts and say, I can't believe we're weak. This isn't right. This isn't fair. They knew that the power of God is best manifested in human weakness. The church of today is powerful. It's also weak. Maybe not in the same exact ways as the first century church. Maybe today we're politically powerful and morally weak. That's a great combination. But as we can see, certainly in the text here, the church's mission was not to shore up weaknesses. Oh, I see we're politically weak. Let's see if we can get Pilate replaced with a Christian. No, the church focused on where it had power. Focused on what it was good at. Testifying to the resurrection. Conquering money. Healing people's moral and spiritual problems. Exposing liars. That was the power of the apostles. That's what they focused on. And when we do the same, when we rule our money, when we expose lies, we heal sickness by testifying to the resurrection we'll see the church grow and prosper just as it did here. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to be weak. We don't want to be beat up. We don't want to be fined and taxed and reduced to second class status for being Christians. We ask that you would change our perspective so that we don't rage against weakness Rather that we accept it, that we can even be glad and boast in our weakness so that the power of Christ can rest upon us. Father, your strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Your strength was perfected at the cross where your son was weak enough to die and save the world. Your strength is perfected in the church today as our brothers and sisters in so many places are not allowed to meet, are arrested, are persecuted, have their church buildings burned down or bulldozed. Lord, in that weakness, Your power is seen. Help us to be a church that offers genuine healing. That hospitals, doctors, and medications don't and can't offer. Lord, let your power rest upon us. Help us to rule our money. Testify to the resurrection. Grow the church all in the power of Christ. And to accept the political weakness, the suffering, the pain that so often accompanies those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.